The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We'll get to Isaiah 40 in a minute, but I want to open with a question for you guys. Pretty simple question, and it's, it's not a question for us congregationally or generally. This is a, con- a question for you personally, and I want you to consider it as we're going through this chapter. Is God truly good enough, faithful enough, strong enough, powerful enough to wait for, to trust in? If, you, if you're a church-going you know, person, you, you might say, Sam, that's, this is an obvious question. Of course, he is. Well, it's, it's really easy to, to just say the answer is yes if you're not either going through something really hard or have had gone through something really hard in your life. It's amazing how the, the, the things in life that are hard sort of turn up the, the necessity of that question. Is God really worthy of my trust? Can I really trust him? Can I really put my, myself fully in him? Let me give you an illustration of, of what I mean. So you, years ago, I, I used to work at this camp conference center, and uh, it was kind of for high schoolers. And, and one of the activities they had was a high ropes course. So one of the activities in the high ropes course was called the leap of faith. And basically, you know, 70 feet up, this giant tree, you climb up. Uh, there's a little tiny platform. So you climb up and you stand on the platform, and the platform's so tiny that your, uh, your feet actually don't fit <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of like just barely on there. Um, and you know you're harnessed in and, and stuff. And, and then out about seven feet in front of you, there is a, uh, like a little handle. And you're supposed to, the idea is you're supposed to basically jump out and grab the handle. <laughs> it's a leap of faith, right? So um, I was going to be running the, the ropes course, and they, they wanted me to obviously experience what it was like before I did it. So I'm like, okay, climb up there. And, and, and you get up there, and you get ready to jump. And all of a sudden, I realized... All of a sudden, it really, really matters who the person is that, I is that is attached to me down there. Do I know this person? Are they really capable? Do they, have they been trained? Do they know how to catch me? Did they check the carabiner? Are they themselves tethered to something? Because what if I'm bigger than them? <laughs> right? I mean, this is the idea, you know? I mean, they're literally, like, my life is in their hands, and in, on that platform, immediately, it makes me realize it really matters. Who I'm attached to. And the question goes through your head, are they, are they, are they good? Are they capable? Are they faithful? And similar instance, uh, in my own personal life, you know, a few months ago, um, my, my daughter, she was having this weird thing, I think I might have talked about it before, but this weird thing where, like, um, she's, like, hypoglycemic or something like that to where, like, sometimes if she doesn't get enough food, like, her body won't jumpstart her awake. Like, so she'll have a real hard time waking up. And uh, it was just kind of weird thing. Like we had this weird time where we couldn't couldn't wake her up, and she was all shaky and stuff. And so we took her to the doctor, and they said, "Hey, you know, like she she might be um, hypoglycemic, so just make sure to give her lots of meals right before bed. She needs a meal, all this kind of stuff." And they're like, "Everything should be fine, you know. Just make sure she doesn't get the flu." And we're like, "Okay, you know." Or, <laughs> well, two weeks later, what do you know? Okay, we all get the flu. So we're kind of worried about her, you know. We're like, "What are we gonna do? She's got the flu." And so she couldn't keep, couldn't keep any food down. She was just constantly vomiting. And, and um, you know, we put her to bed. She hadn't really had any food in her stomach. We were worried about her. 
So my wife goes in around 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning or something to wake her up to try to give her a snack because we're worried about her. And my wife can't wake her up. She's, 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 I mean, she's alive, obviously, but she's like passed out. And we're like shaking her and standing her up, and she's just completely limp. And um, I'm, I'm splashing water on her. We're yelling at her, um, you know, like all, all the things, you, you know, this stuff, all of that. And none of it's working. She's just completely passed out. And, and we start freaking out. And so I grab her. I'm going to, you know, get, get dressed real quick. I grab her. I, th- I th- put her in the van, and I start driving. And about three, three blocks down the road, um, she starts vomiting. But she's not awake. And I'm like freaking out. Like, what if she drowns in her own? I mean, she's not awake. This vomiting is not even waking her up. And, and so I pull the car over, and I go to reach for my phone. I'm like, I got to call 911 or, 911 or something. And I reach for my phone, and I realize I didn't even grab it. I didn't have my phone. It's two in the morning. Uh, I'm five blocks away from the house. I'm 10 minutes away from the hospital, and I just start freaking out. Now, she, she finally started to kind of wake up, and, and we got her to the hospital, and she's fine. Don't worry. Okay, everything's good. But I, I realized as I was driving to the hospital, all I had in that moment was the Lord. I couldn't even call 911. In the hospital, I mean, it's, it's 10 minutes away. I got, I got to just drive there. There's nothing I can do in that moment. I'm completely powerless in that moment. There's nothing to turn to but the Lord, right? And as I'm driving, I just, I had this epiphany. I just went, wow, this is really showing me how much faith I have. Or should I say how little faith? Because this question is literally going through my head as I'm driving. Lord, are you really good? Are you really good? Are you really strong? I mean, strong here? Can, can I really pray? Can I really ask you for help? I know I'm a pastor. I know I tell people to pray for a living. You know, I know I do this. But, but right now, when it really counts, when it really hurts, when it really matters, and there's nothing else to look to, Lord, am I really, do I really believe that you're good? Now, it was a, all things considered, it was a fairly minor thing, okay? These people in this congregation have had way more serious things happen. It was, she was fine. Everything was fine. But it just was a, it was a, it was a wake-up call for me to realize how much do I really trust God? Is he really worthy of my absolute trust, my absolute hope? We're in this series um, called Advent Hope Promised, and we're talking about a hope for, for four weeks um, leading up to the Christmas, uh, kind, of, kind of Christmas service, which will be the, the kind of culmination of all these teachings. And last week, Jeff talked about the promised hope. Hope promised that God has made this promise to us that He is going to deliver us, that He's going to, you know, save um, His people. And so, you know, we lit the first candle, and um, we will. Uh, Jeff broke this, by the way. It's what a what a jerk. Um, we'll, we'll have to order a new one. So, <laughs> uh, so we'll light the second candle. And this this morning we're going to talk. Yeah, I just called him a jerk. Don't tell him. You don't even know if he's in here or not. But um, he didn't mean to. It was an accident. And, you know, he's my boss. Oh, what was I thinking? Okay. Um, anyways, it's a good thing I'm planning a church. Justin, like, you're out of here, dude. Go. You're gone. Call me a jerk. Anyways, um, last week we talked about hope promised. Today the point is, the, the, the topic is hope anticipated. In other words, now that the promise has been made, how do we live in light of this promise? How do we live trusting, waiting for the Lord that he's actually going to deliver? That's kind of the question um, this morning. And the question I really want to ask you, and I've already told you, is, is God really worth our trust? Can we really trust him? Well, there's, there's some folks that, that I want to introduce you to in, in the word of God that actually are sitting in a very uh, hard and uh, serious predicament that in some ways are similar to, to where we're at right now. 
In the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, let me give you some background because uh, this won't make sense without it. In the, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah lived in a time period where uh, the northern and the southern tribes of Israel were ultimately in, the, in a state of apostasy. They, they, had, they had broken covenant time and time again with Yahweh. And for this reason, um, God had essentially delivered first the northern tribe up to judgment, or I should say actually discipline. He allowed the Assyrian army, who was the world-ruling empire at the time of this man's uh, life, Isaiah, the Assyrian empire to come in and actually deport the northern tribe, the northern tribes of Israel, and to import their own people. A hundred years later, Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Judah, now, of Israel, I don't know if you guys know, but Israel was split into two kingdoms for most of their history. Judah was apostate as well. Even though they had more good kings, ultimately um, they had some really bad kings, Kings that put idols in the temple of God, kings that um, continually broke the covenant uh, relationship, uh, kings that, that literally sacrificed their babies to pagan gods, that spit in the face of Yahweh and his covenant and his love and his faithfulness. And, and for that reason, after God's hundreds and hundreds of years of patience, God ultimately, his patience didn't run out. It actually got greater because he loved his people enough to discipline them, to correct them. And so he, he allows, because God is sovereign and providential, he allows the Babylonian Empire, who was the, the new empire of the time, uh, who took out the Assyrians, essentially, um, the Babylonian Empire to come and to, to do the same thing to the southern kingdom as, as the Assyrians had done to the northern kingdom. You guys have heard of this before. It's called the Babylonian Exile. Happened in three waves. Three times Babylon came in um, because Israel continually, or Judah continually rebelled against them, even though God told them to go into exile, to go take their medicine, to go receive their spanking, receive their correction. They continually rebelled against Babylon. And so after three deportations ending finally in Babylon, literally leveling the city of Jerusalem, disassembling the temple, the land of Judah, the land in the south of Israel basically went to seed. It became nothing more than a sheep field, a wilderness. That's the state that Israel is in when this chapter was written. Now, I gotta point out, and this is kind of crazy, Isaiah actually didn't live during that time. He lived 100 years before. But I don't know if you know this, God, he lives outside time. And Isaiah actually penned uh, uh, an encouraging chapter to a generation that was actually 100 years ahead of him, which is absolutely incredible. So when this was written, it was written to a generation of Jews that were receiving God's loving discipline, who had been exiled and ripped out of their homeland, and only a remnant remained hundreds and hundreds of miles away in Babylon. This is how, this is, this is what this is being written to, who this is being written to. Now, I, I don't want to start at the beginning I actually want to start at the end. So let's start at the end of chapter 40. And the reason I want to start there is because I don't, I don't want you to see, um, I, I want you to see the promise that God is speaking through Isaiah first because I want you to want it. Does that make sense? It's kind of like those commercials and they're like, you could look like this if you buy that machine, right? Like I want you to see the promise before you see the, the way to get the promise, okay? Here's the promise that God gives these exiled captive remnant Israel in a state of just disarray. Here's the promise he gives them. Verse 30 of chapter 40. Even youths shall faint 
and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now that's a famous verse. Have you guys ever heard that before? If you ever watch Remember the Titans, you've heard it because that's what the guy sings on there. Remember the Titans fans? Oh, ye eagles, y'all. Okay. Um, It's a famous verse. I should have just said that and left it there. Uh, When I was a kid, I had a Bible cover that had a little eagle on it, and it had this verse printed on the the front. Uh, It's a very encouraging verse. It's a very powerful verse, and it's it's powerful because it's a promise. I mean, God is saying to these exiles, he's saying, hey, if you wait for me, if you wait for me, you will run and not grow weary. You will mount up on wings like eagles. You will walk and not grow faint. Uh, the point here, what he's saying is he's saying, in your humanity, even young people, it says, even youths grow tired and weary. Even the, even the strongest and the youngest, eventually their own strength will run out. But if you wait for the Lord, if you put your faith and hope in him, anticipating his salvation, then you will Renew your strength, and you'll be up out of your weeds, like on the wings of an eagle. You'll be up above all of this stressful stuff that life has, right? You won't be running around feeling like you're, you're literally at your wit's end, waiting just for your head to hit your pillow at the end of the night, sleeping best part of the day, stress of Christmas season, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. He's saying, no, you'll be like on wings of eagles, flying through the air, not stressed, up out of the weeds. This is the promise, He's talking about grit. He's talking about perseverance. He's talking about getting where God has you to be and not getting stuck in your own frailty. Does anybody want that? (laughs) Anybody? I mean, does anybody want that? This is a promise that those that wait for the Lord will have this. Now, he's not talking about physically This isn't some motivational, like, I could fly like an eagle if I just have enough faith. Like, no. He's talking about spiritually, emotionally, you will not only persevere, you will soar, you will fly. If you wait for the Lord. The question, though, comes immediately, well, first of all, what does it mean to wait for the Lord? And secondly, is he worthy of me to wait on him? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? I actually like the ESV Bible, uh, study Bible. I've loved, I just found this um, little phrase in here that, that talks about what it means to wait on the Lord. It says this, is, uh, waiting on the Lord is savoring God's, I love that word, savoring, savoring God's promise by faith until the time of fulfillment. Savoring God's promise. That doesn't just mean you're sitting around waiting, bored. It means you're enjoying the promise. You're actually finding life in the promise itself, even though it hasn't yet been fully realized. Isn't that interesting? That as Christians, we have this, this ability somehow, if we, if we learn how to actually enjoy the substance of a promise that has not yet fully been realized. Mount up like wings, on wings like eagles. I mean, that's, that's exciting stuff. But the question still is, is the Lord worthy of that? This is the question that is answered in this chapter. Is the Lord worthy of our waiting? Are his promises worthy of our savoring? 
If we're strapped up to him in that harness, is he, is he the one we should be strapped to? Is he the right one? Is he the right one? Now let's look at the chapter because Isaiah answers that exact question in this chapter as he encourages the exiles in Babylon. And we're just going to walk through the whole chapter. I want you guys to see the flow here. And he essentially says five things. Five things about the Lord. Now notice <laughs> that, that chapter 40 is not calling you to prescriptions. It's calling you to descriptions. It's calling you to see something about the Lord. Okay, your faith is not built on doing something. It's actually built on seeing something and believing something, realizing something to be true. And so let's see what Isaiah wants us to see, starting in verse 1. And the first thing, by the way, if you're taking notes, the first thing is to, he wants us to see the comfort of the Father. To see the comfort of the Father. I love the very first words in this. After 39 chapters of judgment, you get to Isaiah chapter 40, and the first words are this, comfort, comfort my people. When you see plural imperatives like that, two words back to back in, in um in Hebrew, it's, it's a way of exclam- exclamation. It's, it's putting power behind those words. So it's not just comfort. It's comfort, comfort, doubly said. Who is he speaking it to? My people. Well, that's interesting that he's speaking to my people, right? Because they aren't even in their homeland. I mean, they're off in Babylon. They're just, they're just basically uh, deported civilization, a has-been, a nothing, He calls them his people. He says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? He calls them Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem itself is shattered. It's in ruins. It's flattened. He doesn't see them that way. He sees them as his city, his people, regardless of where they're at. Israel was never meant to simply be a place. Israel means governed by God. He sees them as the city of God, even though they're deported. It says, cry to her that her warfare is ended. I love, by the way, that it says speak tenderly. That word tenderly there actually means to speak to the heart. God is essentially speaking to the heart of his kids. This is, you know what this is? This is the moment after you, 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 you have to, to spank your child or discipline your child. Uh, and you actually, you have that moment of, of a hug afterwards. God has disciplined his kids. Not punished them, but disciplined them. And, and now he's speaking comfort to them because they're his kids. Yesterday, I was sitting uh, in, in my chair just preparing this, and my, my daughter, Scout, she's so cute. She's just this little one-and-a-half-year-old fireball. Um, she's trouble, man, I'll tell you what. Um, she, she's the third one, so she gets away with everything because, you know, she's so cute, you know. Um, so I'm sitting there, and I'm, and I'm, I'm working on this sermon, <laughs> literally thinking about this point. And, and behind me is the Christmas tree, and under the Christmas tree is some presents, and on top of each present is a candy bar. Uh, and Scout, you know, she's like behind me, grabs a candy bar, and <laughs> starts walking away with it, which she's tried to do like 50 times, you know. And I turn around, and I say, Scout, I take the candy bar, Give her a little slap on the hand. You know better. She just instantly burst. Right? Ah! And I open my hands wide. She doesn't even think, man. She just plummels into my body, right? She's not mad at me for disciplining her. She knows I love her. She knows she did something she wasn't supposed to do. She knew it was wrong. The hug is as important as the spanking, isn't it? 
This is what this verse is when, when, father, when the father says comfort, comfort. He's speaking tenderly to his kids. He's saying, I know I disciplined you because you wouldn't listen even though I sent prophet after prophet. But now that you're in your discipline, understand that you're my people. This is covenantal language. He says, my people, your God. He speaks tenderly like a husband speaks to his wife. You know, there's a certain voice that you have when you speak to your, your, your wife or your most beloved person. It's a, it's a voice that you've reserved primarily for them. It's tenderly. You speak to the heart. God doesn't punish his people. You understand that? He, he corrects. He disciplines. Punishment has to do with the penal servitude and injustice and pouring out indignation. That, that is not for God's covenant people because that has all been taken on the cross. He speaks comfort to them. In the New Testament, that word comfort uh, is, is ref- used to refer to the Holy Spirit. It's the paracletes. He's the comforter. And actually, the definition of it is interesting. It's not like you would think. It's not just like words, like comforting words. It's actually actions. The word paraclete in the New Testament Greek, it says it's, he's our advocate, our helper, our comfort, our mediator. There's actually an actionable thing happening there. God is not just saying words of comfort to the remnant of Israel. He actually is their comfort. He's comforting them because he's already in the process of saving them. In the book of Isaiah, it already says that this guy named Cyrus, who lives 100-something years later, will be a king who will allow Israel to go back into their homeland. The discipline has already been finished. I love, too, I'll just point out one more thing in these first two verses. It says that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You notice it's not that her iniquity was paid for by the punishment. Do you think 70 years in exile was enough to pay for all of the sin and all of the terribly wicked, covenant-breaking actions that Israel and Judah did? Absolutely not. He's speaking comfort to them not because they've served a sentence. He's speaking comfort to them because he himself has taken on his back in the future through Christ the punishment that Israel needed and deserved. That's pardon. So the first thing we need to see this morning when we ask the question, is God worthy of our trust, is simply the comfort of the Father. He is a Father who comforts. He comforts. And I have to say this. If you're feeling this morning like God has just absolutely had it with you, he just has no more patience for you, that he's just waiting to punish you, waiting to, to serve up your judgment. If you are in covenant with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no punishment left for you. Do you understand that? Only correction, only discipline. There is not an ounce, not a drop of condemnation or, just, or judgment or punishment left for you. Christ drunk it all. His words to you this morning are comfort, comfort. He speaks tenderly to you. You're his kid. You need to know that. The second thing Isaiah wants us to see here, and we'll speed up a little bit. He wants you to see the coming of the king. Tell me if this verse sounds familiar. Look at verse three. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. 
Every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, 10 points. Who can tell me where that verse comes up? Also in the Bible. Anyone? New Testament somewhere. Guy's name starts with J and ends with an on. His last name starts with a bap, ends with a tist. <laughs> Nobody? Seriously? John the Baptist! Oh, 10 points for Austin. All right. Uh, I'll get you later. Don't worry. I'll give you a candy bar or something. Okay. John the Baptist. This, 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 this is a colossal text right here. This is an incredible text. Isaiah, within its context, what Isaiah is saying here is or really what is being said and recorded by Isaiah, is this call to make a way in the wilderness. Why wilderness? Well, because Israel is not a mighty established nation with a great infrastructure in this particular moment. They're wilderness. They've gone to seed. It's desert. It's sheep fields. That's what Israel basically is when this is written. There's no infrastructure. There's no walls. That's why Nehemiah and the crew went back to fix them, right? there's There's nothing there. Make a way in the wilderness. Make a way in the desert. Make a highway. The invitation of this verse is to the exiled Israelite remnant to make a way for God's salvation to come. To make a highway in the desert, in the dry places, in the places that you feel like there's no possible way God could find you. Making, let me point out, making a highway in the desert is not easy. I know, I've tried it. No, I'm just kidding. I haven't done that. But it, it, making a highway in the desert is not easy. And why does he say desert? Well, he says desert because Israel is basically surrounded by desert. You have the, the sea on one side and you have the Transjordan uh, desert on the other side. He's saying that the king is coming and the king is coming through the desert, so make a way. Now, in the ancient times, uh, when a king would come to visit it, you know, his city, um, there would be quite an exercise of road building that would happen right before and road fixing. They would fix the potholes. Uh, they would put in the road so that when the king could, would come, he, he would come easily. Because they wanted their king to come. Because it was their king. If you're not wanting a certain king to come, you probably wouldn't build a road. You would probably build a wall, right? The call here is not to build a wall. The call here is to build a road for your king to come and deliver you. This is the basic difference between Christian and non-Christian, regenerate, non-regenerate. Christians, see, we want our king to come. <laughs> we want our king not only to come in the future, um, you know, eschatologically, we want our king to come in our lives. We want him to come and show up and make himself present. We want him to be involved. So the call here for Christians is to make a path for him, to, make, to, to, to lower the obstacles that are in the way, to push down the things that might keep him from working and, 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 and taking action in your life. The non-Christian, they don't want to be ruled by Christ, ultimately. They're building walls. But it does say that the mountains will be made low and the valleys will be filled in because guess what? The king is coming. He's coming. And why is he coming? Look at verse five. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Okay, don't let the word glory get lost on you. We say that word so much, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, that's a church word. Glory is God's being. It means weight. It means substance. It is the person, the substance, the weight of God himself. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. And the call is to make way for the king. Now, the question is, how is this 
Where does this find its fulfillment? Well, ask John the Baptist. He's the one that said. All four Gospels, John the Baptist quotes this text, and he says it in regards to one king, the only king, Jesus Christ. Make way. He was calling for all of Judah, all of Israel, in the time of Christ to make a way for Christ to come. He was calling them to repent. He was calling them to to put away the things that would keep Jesus out, and instead they put him on a cross, right? They built a wall rather than a road. This was John the Baptist's call here. Don't miss, the reason that Christ came was so that the glory of God, as it says right here in verse 5, the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh could be revealed to all flesh, to the whole world, through the person of Jesus Christ. This has always been God's ultimate intention for humanity, is to share himself, the substance of himself, the weight of himself with the world. That's what we long for. His substance what we need so not not only is is Isaiah calling us to see the comfort of the father to see the coming of the king he's also calling us number three to see the faithfulness of his word the faithfulness of his word take a look at uh, the end of verse five for the mouth of the Lord has spoken a voice cries again a voice says cry I said what shall I cry so this voice, we don't know whose voice it is, but it's crying out and it's seeing, seemingly to Isaiah. Uh, he's telling Isaiah to cry something out, to not, not to cry with tears, but to yell something out. And here's what it is. Cry this, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath, that word for breath in the Hebrew is ruach, the ruach, the spirit of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. What's, what's being pointed out here? What's pointed out is the frailty, the insufficiency of humanity to deliver on their word. We're just not good at it. We're like grass. This is poetic language here used to describe the fact that that I don't care what politician, I don't care what invention, uh, what scientific discovery, what nation, what political stance, uh, whatever, whatever it is, it's just grass. It sprouts up and it gets mowed down. It comes and it dies. Isaiah is just poetically pointing out that all things in the earth really aren't going to last and really aren't worth your trust. They really aren't worth your dependency. I mean, haven't you experienced that? This may seem like the most obvious point, but haven't you experienced that in life? Like, you're sick, you go to the doctor. Surely in our, in our modern medicine, they can tell me what's wrong and help me get fixed. Sometimes. Most of the time, it's just grass. There's nothing there. It's, I don't know, let's, you know, take some more tests. We'll send you up to Portland. We'll see, it could be this, could be this. Take this drug, doesn't help, doesn't work. Is it, is it, what, is it, what do we look to in this world? Is it goodwill? Is it, is, it, is it just humanity, hoping that maybe people are good? Is it evolution? And maybe if we all die, then we'll come back as better versions through natural selection? You know, is it, is it what is it? Where is the hope that this world has to offer when, when you're really up against it? What do you look to? What do you turn to? What in this world actually has any answers for you? Nothing. It's all grass. And Isaiah points out some of it are flowers, meaning that some of it looks really beautiful. Some of it's very attractive. Some of it seems like it really has some substance to it, but try to put all your weight on a flower and you'll see what happens, okay? 
But in contrast to that specifically, the word of our God will stand forever. His God, God's word is ultimate reality. Do you understand that? God's words are ultimate reality. There is nothing more real, more steadfast, more sure than the words of God. He speaks, creation comes forth. He speaks, creation obeys. If he doesn't speak, it doesn't happen. He is. His words are ultimate reality. We have to believe that. And in contrast to everything the world has to offer, it's essentially nothing. Number four. Isaiah wants us to see the good news of the warrior shepherd. Now, if, you, if you've been tuning out, tune in right here. This is really, some really cool Bible. Okay, right here, some really cool Bible that I want you to see. He wants us to see the good news of the warrior shepherd. Verse 9 says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. In other words, go find a high mountain and proclaim this good news, this gospel, this good news that I'm telling you. Go up, find a mountain, and proclaim it. This was, this was Israel's job. Did you know that? This was what God called them to be, a lighthouse. He called them to be a light to the nations. Uh, they were just terrible at it because they ended up looking exactly like the nations. He says, go up and tell them this good news. Well, what's the good news? Here it is, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Okay, he's strong. And his arm rules for him. Okay, he's powerful. I want you to picture this in your head. Okay, this is, again, this is poetic language. They didn't have videos back then or cartoons or whatever, CG. They, you know, Isaiah's trying to paint for you a picture poetically um, with words. Okay, so this, this Messiah, this strong one, the Lord is coming and, and his arm is mighty. It rules for him. So you have this picture of this warrior who's coming to, to, to conquer, to vanquish enemies. And then in the next verse, okay, his reward is with him, his recompense is before him, but the next verse is very different. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. That's his chest close to his heart, right? And gently lead those that are with young. Now, this is one of the coolest contrasts that we have of Yahweh God. In verse 10, he's a strong and mighty warrior who rules with his right arm. There's all power over the nations. But then in verse 11, we see a very humble, tender shepherd who's so patient and kind that when one of his sheep is stumbling, tripping, hurt, wounded, that he bends down and he picks up the sheep and he throws it on his chest. Not concerned for, for, for the filth, not concerned for the blood, not concerned for the, 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 any, anything other than the sheep himself. He bends down himself, picking up the sheep who is incapable, unwilling, too stupid to know how to get back to the sheepfold. He goes and picks them up by his grace. Man, who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? I mean, this is our Lord. This is the Lord Jesus. He's talking about this, this warrior shepherd. This warrior shepherd, the one who came in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and says, you know, things like this. He says, specifically, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. 
And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and my sheep know me. He takes possession of them. He takes ownership of them. And he has the strength to fight for them. He knows them personally. He picks them up personally. This is what I love about the gospel. This is what sets the gospel apart from every world religion out there. See, every other world religion thinks about religion like this, that, that God is on a mountain. It's always on a mountain because we know that for some reason stuff's broken and we're not, we're not on the mountain. We're not there. Everyone agrees about that. And the goal of us as humans is to get to the Lord. Everyone knows that whether that's through transcendental meditation or whether that's through um, listening to the Quran or whether that's through doing lots of yoga in tight stretchy pants or whether that's, uh, have you not heard about that one? Um, whatever it is, there's a way up the mountain. You've got to get up to the mountain to the Lord, okay? Here's the gospel. It's unlike anything you've ever heard before. This is great, okay? Here's the gospel. The Lord comes down the mountain out of his comfort, out of his glory, and he becomes like one of us because he is the shepherd and he cares for his sheep. Do you know a shepherd was a very lowly job? Something far, far, far below the Lord. But yet he chooses himself to be a shepherd, to come down. And not just to say, hey, you know, here's a couple, I'm going to go back up the mountain. No, he hunts for his sheep. He goes in the rain and the storm and the mud and he climbs through and he hears and listens to the voice of the crying, the broken sheep, the weak, and he calls out to them and they know his voice and he goes and he finds them. The Lord of all glory, the one that created the universe, the transcendent one, the holy one, he comes and steps into the mud and picks up his sheep because they're his and he takes ownership from them, not because he needs anything from them, but because they're his, because he's called them by his name, and he puts them close to his heart, and he carries them back up the mountain to the Father, and he establishes them, and he will leave the 99 to go and find the one because he's just that good. And he's not some wimpy, harp-playing, tender, emotional, poetry-writing shepherd like David, he's a warrior. He's a man of war. See, Jesus comes in his first advent, um, and he comes as this humble and just, just kind and loving Lord. Why? Because he came for his sheep. Okay, you understand that? He came for his sheep. He's coming again. He's not going to be some quietly moving, tender shepherd. He's coming again, and he's going to be a warrior and a king. He's both. Isn't it an incredible picture? You see, the same arm that comes and conquers the enemies, this powerful arm, it's the same arm that bends down to pick you and me up tenderly, speaking comfort, comfort to us. It's the same arm. When you're a little kid, you know, you, your dad is, is, there's no one stronger. My dad's a big guy, he's 6'2", you know. He's a big dude. And I remember thinking when I was a kid, there's no one bigger than my dad. There's nobody stronger than my dad. I used to just watch my dad sometimes. You just, he'd, he'd, the jar needed open, he'd open it. Something was broken, he'd fix it. He was strong. And at the end of the night before I'd go to bed, I'd climb up in my dad's chair and I'd sit in that same arm that I watched 
be strong. As, through the eyes of a little kid, just this strong arm, the same arm would come around me tenderly and comfort me. Do you see God that way? Or is he just some big bully that wants to pick on you? I don't think many of us have a hard time believing that God is strong. I think many of us have a hard time believing that his power is humble and restrained for his own purposes and that he could actually be as good as his word declares him to be. He really is that good. He really is the warrior shepherd. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And like it says here in Isaiah, he, he sees the, the pregnant mother sheep who's kind of 20 paces behind the rest of the herd. You ever feel like you're that one? <laughs> like, I just feel like I'm constantly behind. And he takes the time to walk back and to, 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 to tend to the, the needs of that sheep. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, we've got to leave her behind, survival of the fittest. I only want the strongest of sheep. No, he cares for the tender he cares for the weak, pardon me. He, he's tender towards them. Why? He doesn't need anything from us. Why does he choose to give himself to us? I don't know. But it's amazing. It's incredible. So see the good news of the warrior shepherd. This is the gospel. Number five. And we're going to cover some ground here, okay? So buckle up. Number five. See the power of the creator. You see, I, I can guarantee at this point, uh, as Isaiah is penning this, uh, you know, to this future generation, that it could be easily said, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. God's loving, sure, okay. But is he capable? Is he capable? Because guess what? No one has ever gotten back from exile in Babylon before. That doesn't happen. There is no, listen, there's no historical record other than this one right here, of anyone leaving the grips of the Babylonian captivity. When they would ex exile you, you didn't go back to your land. You just didn't. So here they are, you know, halfway through their, their, their correction, their discipline, and, and here they're reading this, and they're reading other prophets like Jeremiah and so on, talking about how the Lord is going to restore them, and they're thinking, God can't do that. How can the Lord really do that? I mean, this is Babylon we're talking about. This, these guys ruled the ancient worlds. They were powerful. Nobody could stand in their way. Well, you need to read the rest of the chapter because that's exactly what Isaiah is trying to, 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 to point out, is that God can do what he said he can do. Let's dive into it. And we're going to move fast. First thing he says in verse 12, talking about the, the power of the Lord. He said, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Okay, he's saying, who, who, you know, the Lord cups all the water in all the universe. Or I don't know if there's more water in the universe, but all the water in the earth, okay? He cups it in his hand right there, just that little, that little part of your hand. He, he measures the entirety of the universe in a span. A span is from your thumb to your finger. It's just all right there for him. Now, I know this is poetic, okay? This is how things came into 3D for people, okay? This is how God spoke. It's beautiful. You gotta let it move you. You gotta experience poetry. It's not just something that you think, wait a minute, that's, that scientifically doesn't make sense. Or whatever, okay. This is poetry, and it's communicating a beautiful reality that you gotta catch, okay? Uh, verse 13. 
Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Now, you could also translate, and I think it might be better, you could also translate uh, measured to be directed. Okay, so who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Again, ruach of the Lord, Yahweh. Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, nobody taught God anything. He is the source of all life, all knowledge. When he has a question, he doesn't call up his buddy. He talks to himself. Ephesians talks about how Christ, uh, the Father, does all things according to the counsel of his own will. This is how God operates. No one teaches God anything. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is the source of all truth. That's why it's so funny to me when, when I myself or others say statements like, is God really just to do what he does or what he did? That's such a funny statement because what you know of justice is only what God has allowed you to know. In fact, what you know of justice is entirely based off of what he has allowed you, the way he's allowed you to think about it or frame it in the first place. Who are we? This is what Paul argues in Romans, right? He says, who are you, created thing, to argue with the creator? Is God not the, literally the source or the definition of justice? Who am I to say that God is not just when God is the definition of justice himself, Right? This is what this is saying. He's, he's omniscient. No one teaches him anything. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. In other words, if, if you were trying to be an earth-moving person, I want to move the earth, and you take a bucket of water and you just go, bloop, and you just take one little drop and it hits the surface of the earth, how much did you move the earth at that point? You didn't move it one bit. He's saying all the power, all the might of the nations up against the Lord. It doesn't even move the Lord one bit. Uh, you can't even put, you can't even weigh uh, the, the nations on a scale because ultimately they're dust. They just blow away. 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon was known for being a forest uh, in those days and the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. In other words, if you took every single tree in the forest of Lebanon and you put it in a giant pile and soaked it in gasoline, lit it on fire, and then you took every animal you could possibly find and you threw it on, it would not suffice to appease the Lord's holiness. You say, well, wait a minute, is, what's the point of Old Testament sacrifice? It was to remind them. It was to remind them. It may have been to create a clean space. We can talk about that later. But ultimately, not every single sacrifice that ever took place in all of the history did not do a thing to satisfy the righteous indignation of a holy and righteous God towards a sinful world. This is why Christ had to come. He was the only sufficient sacrifice Every lamb could have been sacrificed until the end of the age, until the end of the world, until all eternity. It would not have been enough to satisfy the holiness of God, only Christ himself. And this is what Isaiah is pointing to. He's saying you could pile up every log and take every sacrifice, but God's holiness is such that he cannot be appeased. All the nations are as nothing before him, verse 17. They are encountered, or sorry, they are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Then we get into his incomparability. He says, to whom then will you liken God? 
Or what likeness compare it with him? In other words, what can you even pick out of your mind to try to describe God? As soon as you try to describe God, you've fallen short. You can't do it. I mean, every... Every word that theologians have come up with, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, immutability, all of these things, none of them come close to describing the fullness of who God is. They just don't do him justice. Even poetry falls short. Even, even cinematic things just, just can't describe the glory and the power of God. There's no way to do it. And then verse 19, he says, An idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. He's talking about how silly idolatry is. Because an idol cannot possibly hope to describe the glory and the goodness of God. It just can't. The funny thing about this you might notice is he doesn't actually say anything insulting about idolatry. He just talks about idolatry. And it's so stupid that it's obvious. He just says, how ridiculous that a man would take a piece of wood and try to say, this is a description of God. Just a side note, freebie. Mankind is the only thing God has ever said bore his image. And we did a terrible job at it. And Christ is the ultimate image bearer of God, the final fulfillment of what we were meant to be. But that's just a side note. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants that are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You notice, isn't it interesting that God is, is this is what theologians call eminence and transcendence. Okay, uh, Transcendence means that God is not nature. He created nature, but he sits above it. We're not pantheists. We don't believe that God is creation. Okay, We believe that God is is creator and he created creation. But at the same time, he's providentially sovereign over all of it. He's working. He's in everything. He's the one breathing on the grass. He's the one working. He's both. He's both transcendent, other than, apart from his creation, but he's also involved in every detail. It's incredible. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host, now it's talking about stars, by the way, he who brings out their stars by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now let me just throw this out really quick. There are four billion stars in our galaxy, in the Milky Way galaxy, okay? Or in, in the, there's, there's four billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and there's 125 billion galaxies, Okay, so do the math really quick and tell me, what did you, what did you get? What do you got? Okay, I don't know. I, there, was, there was a number there. It was like something, something to the something, something. And I'm like, I didn't go that far in math, so I didn't even write it down. But um, there's a lot of stars, okay? More than is comprehensible. I mean, there's so many stars. And the point here poetically is God is saying, I don't forget a single one. In fact, I've named every one. I know them all. Do you think God forgot you? 
Do you think he forgets you? Do you think that, that maybe tomorrow when you have a crummy day, you know, um, you just think, man, Lord, I know you're busy. Can you remember me for a second? He hasn't forgot you. He knows you. He has every star named. He has every speck of dust in the universe. He created it meticulously. Meticulously. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? In other words, God has forgotten me. And my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, the covenant is no longer in play. God doesn't care about me anymore. I'm not his kid. This is what Israel's saying. This is what they're feeling. Have you not known? Here's the response. Have you not known? Verse 28, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. In other words, he's not sick of you guys. He can do this all through eternity. He is faithful to his covenant. He will carry it through. Guys, listen, I don't care how tired you think God is of you repenting, asking for forgiveness, crying out to him, telling him you're a dork. Over and over and over and over, Lord, I'm sure you're sick of me. I can't be the sheep that you really wanted. (laughs) He doesn't run out of patience for you. You are his if you are in covenant with him. You are his. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. Okay, now after all of that, after all the power of God, all the, all the omniscience, omnipotence, omnip- all of those things about God we just looked at, at the same exact time in verse 29, it says he gives power to the faint. He gives power to the faint. While being that powerful, he simultaneously is so careful in loving those that are weak. And to, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And we end back where we started. Let's read it again. Even though, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fail exhausted, or fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Can we trust this God? Can we trust him? Is he worthy of our trust? Is he good? Is he faithful? Is he loving? He is. He is. Little faith grows from a little view of God. Did you know that? I realize that. You know, my faith, my lack of faith, often has less to do with my uh, misunderstanding of what faith is and more to do with my misunderstanding of who God is. You want to grow your faith, don't sit around thinking, what is faith, what is faith, how do I get better faith, I want more faith, what's more faith, what's more faith? Think about God. Think about him. We spend so much time thinking about ourselves, no wonder we have no faith. All the modern medicines, modern science, and psychology, so much of it is telling us how to know ourselves better. Oh yeah, you need to know yourself a little bit. You need to know your God. We need to know the Father. We need to understand who this God is that has allowed us to be in covenant with him, to be his kids, to be part of him, to recognize and realize his glory. We need to know him. The the reality of what we need is we we need bigger screens to see who God really is. This is how we wait on the Lord. I just think it's so cool that in Isaiah chapter 40, the remedy for the lack of faith or the remedy for, for what they're feeling, the, the remnant is feeling, is not to just do something. It's just simply to see something about God. 
Do you understand? Israel was already in covenant with God. God wasn't asking them to renew a new covenant. He was just calling them to remind them of the covenant they were already in with God. He calls them my people, my people, Jerusalem, Israel, my children. And in the same exact way, if you have received Christ, you are in a covenant with him. You need to learn about who that God is that will honor that covenant even when you're not. That's where faith grows. Faith grows by knowing its object more than knowing its concept. This is why theology is so important. We need to know this God that we serve. He's so worthy. He's so good. So that when things get hard, and can I just tell you, they do. (laughs) They do. I'm still fairly young. I got a whole lot of hard stuff ahead. If I am not in this thing constantly, reminding myself of who this God is that I am anchored to, that I'm attached to, when stuff gets hard, my faith will be very weak. I love it. I say it all the time with John Piper. He says, wimpy Christians have wimpy worldviews. No. Did I say that right? Yeah. You have, if you're a wimpy Christian, it's because you have a wimpy worldview. It's because you don't really know how great God is. How do these people do these things? How do they go into these countries where it's dangerous? How do, they, how do people die for their faith? How do, they, how, do they, how do they do these insanely hard things? They do it because they have found God to be faithful. And they did that through knowing him. Let's know the Lord. He's good. Amen? Amen. Let's stand, guys. Next week we'll be looking at the next Advent teaching, which is Hope Lived. Should be really awesome teaching, so you guys be sure and come out for that. Father, we thank you so much today, God, for your faithfulness. Lord, you really are incredible. And Lord, again, I I just feel completely inadequate. I feel like my words are just like a a cage for your reality. (laughs) Like they just they just can't even communicate how great you are and what I've I've felt and seen to be true in my heart in these scriptures, Lord. Father, may we be people that trust you, not because we just try really hard and do the right things and and muster up the faith, but because we have found you to be true and good, to be the warrior shepherd, to be the comforting father, to be the tender and loving spouse, to be the one that honors your covenants, the one that is sovereign over all creation and providentially working all things together for our good. When we've just found those things to be true, Lord, help our unbelief, God. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was the fulfillment of all these things. And like John the Baptist said, and like you declared through Isaiah, Lord, may we make straight a path in the wilderness, Lord. God, may we, may we remove the obstacles and invite in faith you to be our deliverer in our lives, God. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.